everyone, and welcome to Chowhound's Table Talk podcast, where we chat with some of the most influential names in the food space. I'm your host, Hannah Ospring. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chowhound's Table Talk. Today, we're joined by Andrew Scrivani, famed food photographer whose work you've most definitely seen in the New York Times food section, as well as in numerous cookbooks. And now he's put on the author's hat with his beautiful, informative new book called That Photo Makes Me Hungry. It's chock full of his own imagery, but also packed to the brim with very real insider tips. You'll find everything from the technical aspects of camera work to my favorite chapter on making a living as a working food photographer. We'll get to that part later. I've been such a longtime fan and admirer of Andrew's work most recently in Anna Gass's touching compilation cookbook, Heirloom Kitchen, and I couldn't be more excited to have him here today. Welcome to Chowhound, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, I love that we have a fellow New Yorker in the house. I'm also a New York girl. Um, We're a rare breed. Yeah, I know. Um, I know you hail from Staten Island, and I love that you kind of kick up kick off your book with a fun anecdote on how being from Staten Island kind of helped give you your first break. Yeah, I think uh, the the idea of photographers coming from Manhattan to Staten Island to do work sometimes was a little bit challenging for some of the um, for some of the editors at the times. And um, it happened to be just a food job. It was kind of a throwaway job in a lot of ways. And uh, it went, it fell to me and, uh, I got an opportunity to shoot for the food section of the times, which back then was called dining in, dining out. And, um, it gave me a chance to sort of check off a bucket list item of doing work for the New York times and say that I've done that. And it turned into much, much more. And here we are 17 years later, uh, with this book on the table full of pictures that I took for the New York times and, and other places. So it's, it's been quite a ride. Well, you didn't just treat it as a simple photo shoot, right? Oh, no. No, no, no. I went in there like I own the place. Uh, it was it was sort of, um, I had I felt like I had the full weight of the New York Times behind me to take a picture <gasps> of ice cream. And uh, it was a lot of fun to do it. And I had felt, I, I kind of felt filled with confidence when I walked in there and took that those pictures. And, um, you know, the response I got on the back end of that was, they just kept hiring me. So my confidence grew and built. And, you know, I went from being an assignment photographer out in the field to starting to do um, assignment work uh, with recipes. And that sort of was born of the idea that eventually they figured out that I knew how to cook. And, you know, what we know of now as food photography isn't quite what it was back then. Uh, I think, you know, where food photography is pretty ubiquitous now, Mm -hmm. I think then it was a pretty niche market. And there weren't as many people like self-identifying as food photographers. So it was a huge opening for me. There were other factors at play in the photography world at that time. There was a a contract thing going on with photographers and and the New York Times, which a lot of people were sort of withdrawing from because of digital. And uh, there was an opportunity and I was sort of right in the middle of the crossroads between that situation and food sort of becoming more ubiquitous and the Times growing there their catalog of uh, recipe work and an editor who really believed that we needed to be more visual. So uh, I happened to be a, the guy, right guy in the right place with the right skill set. Perfect timing. Had you been working as a full-time professional photographer up until that point? 
Um, no, and I wasn't a full-time uh, photographer for many years after that. So I was, um, I was a teacher, uh, a regular school teacher, uh, who happened to have some background as an amateur photographer. Um, and then I went through some life changes and there were things happening and I really needed to do two things. I needed to change up what I was doing in my life and I needed to make a little bit more money. So I reached out to some friends who were in the photography world and I said, you know, what do I got to do to get an assignment? You know, who do I got to contact? Who do I have to talk to? And most of my friends um, from college were photographers, working mm -hmm. photographers, editors, producers, people in the industry. And I went a different direction. So even though I wasn't classically trained in photography, um, I, I got a formal photography education because I went to Baruch College, which is right around the corner. And... School of Visual Arts is right across the street. Oh, so My best friend growing up was a photo major at SVA. So I spent more time on that campus than I did on my oh, own. Fun. So I was learning how to write this book in, at Baruch, and I was learning how to take the pictures at SVA. And then it all sort of came together many years later. One man banding. Yeah, a little bit. And you had mentioned you actually studied literature in school. Yeah, I have a degree in uh, in English literature, and I studied very intensely um, for, in my master's program for in Shakespeare and um, and poetry, particularly Emily Dickinson and um, and oh gosh, who else was it? Walt Whitman. Sorry, I'm thinking about what the thesis paper was. Um, <laughs> really taking you back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. My you know my uncle, um, who was sort of the creative influence in my life. Um, he was involved in the, the beat poet sort of movement. He was very oh, close wow. to all those people. So as a young guy, I was able to kind of come into the city and hang out and yeah. meet people like Allen Ginsberg and Amiri Baraka. And, so you know, I'm, I've met Neely Tchaikovsky and some of the other sort of key figures in that movement on both coasts because he ended up living in San Francisco. So it was sort of spurred this idea of being sort of a downtown artist, even when I was a young man, yeah. before I was a teacher. So that's sort of seed was planted many years ago and it was something that was gnawing at me at that point in my life and I wanted to express that so the the, the opportunity to start shooting where I was already starting to do a little writing I was I had a couple of magazine assignments but the photography sort of grabbed me in a, in a different way and it really allowed me to express myself and then of course the association with the New York Times it was consistently opening doors for me to do other things so it gave me a lot of creative opportunities outside of photography like writing and directing and now producing films mm -hmm. so it's like consistently opened doors for me along the way having the new york times on your resume is not a bad thing uh i'm affiliated with a film uh company now and i'm in, at, at you know at the basically was there at the beginning phases and now we're growing we just did uh, our first feature film and my business partner his name is uh julio gambudo he's a harvard grad and a UC, a, uh, UC, uh, USC film grad. Wow. So he's got that, those two things going in his, in his uh, resume. And the joke when we go out and meet people and talk, I'm like, yeah, he's got Harvard. I got the New York Times. What else do we need? So it's sort of, you know, that's the thing that sort of opens those doors for yeah. people to at least listen to the conversation. And then it's like, oh, these guys are pretty smart. So, yeah, let's, let's give them some money to make a movie. And, you know, <laughs> so that's sort of that was the last two years of my life. Amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about this feature-length film? Yeah, sure. Um, the, the film is called Team Marco, and um, it's a family film um, about sort of generational conflict, technology, and parenting. So uh, it's about a little boy named Marco. He's tech-obsessed like most, you know, 11-year-old boys. And he's 
forced to share a room with his grandfather because his grandfather loses his wife and then his house mm-hmm. burns down and circumstances they land together and they're in the same room. Uh, and the key to the friendship that they develop is gameplay where the boy is obsessed with video games, but the grandfather plays bocce every day. Mm, I love that. So he starts to take his grandson out with him to play bocce and learn about friendship and learn about life in a different way and something more 3D rather than 2D. And it's uh, and it's a family kind of dramedy, if you want to play it that way. It's got some really soft moments. It's also got some really heart-touching and some really sad moments. But it's uh, we're really proud of it. Uh, it took us over two years to develop. Uh, we filmed it in about 30, about 30 days. And uh, wow. we just won an award at a Mill Valley Film Festival. Which uh, we uh, were audience, we were the uh, audience favorite for family films. We're going to be out at about uh, about twenty film festivals uh, this year. Um, we start in February. We're going to be in uh, Seattle. We're going to be in New Jersey. We're going to be in Taiwan. We're going to be in uh, Munich, Berlin, a few other places. So uh, hopefully, we uh, we jump started our film careers with with a with a winner. I mean, you really uh, hit the ground running. I did. Um, I saw it as an opportunity. I originally got involved with the company as an investor. Um, and I saw it as an opportunity. I was already directing television commercials, but you know, I, I felt like the next logical leap was to start to move into more narrative film, filmmaking. And uh, the opportunity as an investor sort of opened the door for me to step in as a creative. And that role grew and grew and grew. And it became less important that I was a investor in the company and more important that I was a creative um, participant in the filmmaking and now we have grown into you know business partners and creative partners and uh you know i'm I'm balancing these two careers uh between the photography and the things that the book is bringing and also the uh the film work well it feels like a natural extension and you really talk about your love of storytelling and this is just another medium by which you can express yourself creatively and technically yeah, it really did surprise me the 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 role of producer in a in a film project. I never really understood what that meant creatively. And then getting involved with with Julio and and Barack, who's our writing partner, um, not not the Barack you might think. <laughs> not that other. Guy. It would be nice if it was him, but yeah. it's but it's not. Um, the creative sort of energy that happens in the room when you're sitting there with a script and you're making notes and you're, you're you're thinking out loud and you have two other or three other people in the room who are really smart it's a very different environment for me as a photographer you know it a lot of it is in your own head mm-hmm. and you're creating visually without words and but when you're actually able to combine all of the things that I have loved to do my whole life with it which is storytelling and writing and and understanding the structure of of how to tell a story and then visuals and I, I formed a really amazing friendship with the cinematographer on the on the uh, on the film, and we, we've done other projects together now. And we're we seeking to work together. His name is Powell Robinson. He's out in LA, but we play a game on Instagram where I will put a picture up, and then he has to guess whether I lit it with daylight or artificially. And I trust his eyes more than anybody I've ever worked with, and I fool him about sixty percent of the time. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So the fact is, is that I'm also, you know, being involved with people like that, and you know, being involved with a with a color company like Company Three, which is one of the bigger ones in in the industry. You know, it's just it's heightening my visual acuity to another level. Being around more really 
excellent visual people. So I think it helps to challenge my photo work by being around people in adjacent industries who are at the top of their game. And it's just, it's been just like a creative renaissance for me after all these years of doing just sort of this one thing. That's amazing. And I know you're a fan of sports, so I can't help but draw an analogy here, but it really feels like one working in a team or on a team, I should say, is a completely different dynamic. And then also playing or working with those who are at your level, if not a little higher, brings your game up. Sure. Uh, I, I played competitive baseball until I was 40 years old. Um, wow. Not softball, baseball. <laughs> make sure we make that distinction. Um, yeah, I played uh, Division One college ball, and then I played in uh, semi-pro men's leagues pretty much my whole time after Amazing. college until 40, and then my body said, please stop. <laughs> um, but, it, it, you know, I was a coach, I was a teacher, I was a player, I was a captain, you know, and all of those lessons I learned in sports was something that helped me build my teams as a creative. Mm. And then you you assemble talent and you coach people up, and there are people who are better than you there are people who you know or they have you have bigger expectations for them or there are people who are role players but you have to make everybody understand how important they are to the overall success of the team of the project of the game or whatever it is and i took that with me into this world and it served me very well because uh the people who work with me and for me and and have become friends they've become family they've become you know repeat customers whatever you want to call it <laughs> But the reality is that um, I like being judged by who I am rather than what I've done. And I think that, you know, being an artist that, you know, in the digital world, my, my work will live on the Internet for a very long time. But I hope my reputation precedes that, you know, where he's a nice guy to work with. He's not a jerk. He's not an egomaniac, you know, like the kinds of things, the friendships that I've built, um, you know, those things are important to me. And then, of course, nurturing and... Um, mentoring younger artists has been sort of that thing I carried with me from the teaching world. And it was very Im important to me. Uh, well, I guess I didn't realize it was that important to me until I wasn't doing it anymore. Mm. And then somebody reached out to me in, uh, about eight or nine years ago and said, hey, you know, you should teach a workshop. And I was like, yeah, okay, I could do that. And like, I didn't even think of it. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll put together a curriculum because I mean, it was something I had done Second my whole nature. life. Yeah. And um, I built it out and I went out and I taught all these people in, in, out in Seattle. And it turned out there was a whole bunch of like high profile bloggers and high profile like people who had gotten book contracts. You know, this was eight, nine years ago mm. before Instagram. And um, it went over really well. And then there were people in that room that had access to bigger platforms who said, hey, we want you to come and uh, do a big speech at the International Food Bloggers Conference or hey, we want you uh, to come over to Creative Live and teach an online course. So it sort of was this spark that got lit, and I was like, wow, I really like teaching still. And it's really nice to teach adults because they turn around and say, hey, you know, you're a really good teacher where you have to wait like 20 years for kids, for kids <laughs> to do that. So uh, it's been, that was the, uh, the, fun, the fun part of teaching adults was something that was new for me and uh, having relationships and building friendships around the teaching part. And I write about that in the book as well. There's a couple of people that have uh, become part of my life now that were just kind of randomly thrown at me as a student. Um, people my own age, even people older than me, you know, it was very, it was a very different experience. 
that seems like such a turning point in your career. And um, this is actually a great segue into talking about your book because what I love about your book is that it feels so approachable and it really feels like a, a, a good teacher is talking to you rather than a didactic guide full of technical aspects, which you have that part too. And it's important to um, marry both in a way that is uh, easy to digest and encouraging and your anecdotes are so fun and, and warm. So I really appreciate that. And I feel like anyone can come in and appreciate this book from like a Lee Olson type character who is like 101 to someone who is probably in the business working and looking to fine tune their existing skill set. So who did you have in mind when you were writing this book? I mean, I think I had all of those people in mind when I started this, but the reality is what you what you keyed on as, as a turning point is that the structure of this book was born out of the creative live classes. And when I discussed how, writing a book many years ago with several different publishing companies, it always felt like they wanted me to do a pedantic kind of graphically driven sure. instructional manual. And what I said was, I don't want to write that book and I don't want to put recipes in it and I don't want to water it down. I want to teach people what I teach them in a classroom. So when I went to Countrymen, they were like, yeah, okay, do that. And I was like, really? I'm, I'm like, she's like, yeah. She's like, I've watched you on Creative Live. She's like, just tell the stories that you tell. Just put them in a book. That's great. And it was so liberating to write it that way. I sat in cafes. I, I don't know, you know, like I spend so much time in my studio that I wanted to get out of that environment to write this. So I wrote it in two or three cafes in the Lower East Side and I spent, you know, four and five hours at a time doing it. Like I would pace myself into those kind of, and I'd write maybe a chapter in a sitting. And I remember the Leo, the, the Leigh Olson um, chapter was something that I was sitting in the cafe and I was thinking about that episode in my teaching career and i was like who's the book for it's for her it's for the person like her you know and then who else is it for it's for the people who can't have come to me who are established photographers in other fields and needed to understand the differences between what it was like to do portrait photography and what it's like to take food because now as a wedding photographer my clients are asking me to do food as well, because it's become important to them to have this in their package because the food is such an important part of their wedding. This is something that people would say to me. Or, you know, I I, I do lifestyle photography. I travel around the world, but I, I, ne I, you know, I never get the food right or something like that. So you know, people with seriously accomplished backgrounds coming to these classes and wanting to talk about these things. And I was like, well, I have to speak to all of that. And I want to make sure that it's not dry and that it feels like there, there's some fun involved. Because when you're in front of a classroom and you start seeing them nod off, you know that you got to change your tone. And then, When the adults nod off? Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> I, was, I was doing a speaking event the other night and I felt I was, on a, I was on sort of this run where I was just talking and talking and talking and my voice was lulling this one young woman to sleep. So I immediately <laughs> did what I did as a teacher. I asked her a question. And she was Scary. like. But, but yeah, it was, you know. But I mean, that you, if you're going to be in my audience, you got to remember that my instincts are going to be like teacher classroom, you know, not lecturer or not, you know, I'm not there to make a speech. I'm there to interact. 
And um, I try really hard to do that. And that's what the book was also my attempt at doing is interacting with the audience to say, go sit there with the camera in your lap and flip around with the dials, because that's how you're going to learn and understand not to be afraid how to change your aperture, how to mm-hmm. change your, how to change your shutter speed, how to work on your white balance. Because in, if, if I'm there with you, maybe you feel a little more comfortable with that. Because I know that was the most intimidating part for me too. I mean, I'm, I'm a seriously right brain person and the the math of the of the camera was the barrier in the very beginning. I was like, ooh, how does that work? You know, the aperture and the like, speed. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, talking about with the section I wrote about table geometry with Michael Harlan Turkel, who He's I'll so be on, great. and I'll be on his uh, radio show tomorrow. Oh yeah, great. yeah, uh, the food, food scene. scene. Yep. And I've been on. I'm. I will have been on the very first episode of the food scene, one in the That's middle, right, and the very last episode of the food scene. Wait, is this the last that episode is, of it his? It is the last one. Oh, end of an era. End of an era. I mean, it's been a while. And uh, he told me I'll be, I'll be the only person who's ever been on the show three times, which I felt hugely honored by because I feel like he's done and accomplished so many things with that show. It's, You're basically a co-host at this point. Well, yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's sort of like SNL, right? I should get yeah. a bathrobe with a with a yeah. insignia yeah. on it you know, you, after you've been on so many times. But yeah, he's great. And um, I write about this section in the book uh, about table geometry, and it highlights the idea of being a different type of a learner, right? In that, uh, as a teacher, we used to have to go for professional development about learning how different people learn differently, you know? So it's not just about intellectual capacity, but it's also learning style. So Michael is is really left-brained, and I'm really right-brained, or I'll and we're both sort of a little of both, which, I mean, if you want to get into the weeds on it, um, when they test teachers in these programs that, you know, were part of, le- you know, teaching people about yeah. le- different learning styles, you had to be tested yourself. If you're right-brained, left-brained, sure. or middle, middle-brained. As it turned out, I was middle-brained, which is the rarest because it's a little combination of both. And Michael has got to be very similar because we're both creatives who – have the ability to kind of play exactly the, the other side of that of their brain. So this this um, chapter table geometry talks about that and how when you're addressing an audience and addressing a group of people, you have to assume that you have learners of all kinds in there. So you have to make sure you could speak the language both ways because if you only come at it from a right brain perspective or only come at it from a left brain perspective, you're going to lose half the audience. Exactly, especially when it comes to something as complicated as camera settings and how to apply that and what that means artistically. So I tried to make that as simple as possible for people to understand. And it was there already. It was something that he and I had done for Star Chefs many years ago. So it was, uh, it was pretty... The other part of being in the, in the mindset of writing this book was it was sort of like a, um, a, a, mem- a remembrance tour. Oh, yeah. Like going back and thinking about all these different scenarios and the different photo shoots and the different people I've met along the way. So it was sort of like a, a little trip down memory lane. And it was fun. It was like a nice way to recall and recapture a lot of the, the things that I've done and the people I've met and the experiences I've had because of, you know, a camera. And have you... Did- during that process, did you look back and say, wow, my style has really evolved or, or not? Uh, I think there was a, a point in time where I've sort of arrived at a style and I've kind of, I kind of lived in it for a good while. And then, you know, just recently, trends change, clients change, 
you know, the, the, the whole general aspect of what food photography means in the marketplace has changed and you have to adapt. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been working on for quite a few years was the idea that this sort of ubiquitous look of overhead shots on light colored mm-hmm. surfaces with less propping and less, you know, adornment was becoming the style. And I, and then the other thing that was sort of troubling me was this idea of hard lighting. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a hard time justifying my style through that lens. And I, I didn't understand like why we wanted to shoot food this way because it didn't really look appealing. It didn't look like I wanted to eat it or grab it. It wasn't evocative. And I was like, well, how do I reconcile this? Like, how do I figure out what my style is going to be in this particular arena, arena right? And, um, and that's where the movie lighting came in. You know, that's where the growth into another industry helped me reconcile how I was going to make that look a little bit more fine arty, a little less food porny. Right. And, but still own it where you look at the picture and you said, oh, I know that guy, you know? And I think that's the important part. I think that's the, the, the one part of this that's ego driven for me is that part is that you look at the picture and you know I took it. Absolutely. That's the one thing that's not, it's a non-starter for me. If you drive me in that direction where the, the, my work starts to look like everybody else's work, that's not who I am. That's just not what I want to do. I want to lead. I don't want to follow. And uh, when I get pushed into that corner, sort of it forces me creatively to think uh, of different ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And you got to be patient because honestly, so much of what we've done in food photography is technology driven from digital cameras to LED lighting mm-hmm. and everything that we've done in, you know, in between, um, we needed to change with the technology and adapt to it. So I think that's sort of, I think it's driven the look of, of food photography for quite a long time and continues to. I know you said you're inspired a lot by the Dutch masters and that's so apparent in your iconic style. It is kind of like a still life, but not in that harsh way that we're seeing these days, which I'd love to ask you about right after this. Um, What else are you inspired by? You know, it's funny. I get, get, we we talk about this a lot when when I'm teaching too, and I try to encourage people to stay, just don't populate their Instagram feed with just a thousand food photographers because Mm -hmm. eventually you're not really thinking like an artist anymore. You're just trying to recreate something that maybe somebody else made. And architecture for me has been a passion. If I had to do it all over again and go right back to where I was at like in the 10th grade, I might think about architecture as a career. Um, I'm I'm inspired by design. I'm inspired by architecture. I spend time in museums and out in the world and looking at my social media feed. You wouldn't know what I did for a living if you looked at my, Mm. what I look at on my social media feed. You might think I like food, you wouldn't think I'm a food photographer. You might think I'm an artist. You might think I'm a designer. You might think I'm an architect. But all of the things that inspire me in three-dimensional art, sculpture, architecture, design, inspires what I do in food because I feel like food is a three-dimensional art form as well. So I think when you're looking at shape and color and light, well, great architects have to do the same thing. How is their creation going to live in the world with light and color and space and, and utility and utility yes absolutely i mean i'm reading 
uh, several books right now that are all design driven. And mm-hmm. don't ask me to quote them because yeah. <laughs> they're on the night table. I, don't, I haven't started yet. But um, but for sure that, you know, there are so many different aspects of user experience, right? We talk about when you talk about uh, my niece works for Spotify and she, she deals with a lot of these kind of UX issues. Oh, yeah. And when you start to think about it in that way, you know, food is is very driven by user experience, right? It is user experience. It is user experience. So if you want to put a story in front of somebody that involves food, it has to be fit into the continuum of how you use food, how food is ingrained in what we do every day. And if it really feels super static, it doesn't feel like there's any movement in the frame, whether it be hands or a spoon or a crumb on the table, it's just kind of indicating that someone is, was there. It's not just food in a vacuum. It's food and there's people nearby. The people are going to interact with it. You know, so that's sort of part of that user experience that is inspired by other art forms. You touch on so many things. Number one, I can totally see you as an architect because it is that right and left or midbrain, as you say, that perfect profession. And I like heavy frame black glasses. <laughs> also, you look the part. You give it right in. <laughs> um, but this is also a good transition into your photography style. It's dictated always by a good storyline, visually speaking. So can you tell us how do you try to weave a tale with movement and what you call anticipated narrative? Yeah, I think when you place a photo in front of somebody, you want to – the, the comment I get a lot of times is I want to reach in mm. and participate with it. And I think that I try to think about that in terms of like almost like a cinematic flow. Uh, And I think this is one of the things that's helped me as a filmmaker is that looking at it in terms of if I stop the frame right there, do I still tell the story? Do I stop it here? Do I still tell the story? And if the answer is no, then then the picture is not right. Mm. So if I'm anticipating what's going to happen next, it also draws the audience to me is that the whole idea of good filmmaking is I want to see the next scene. So that's exactly what I'm doing with food photography is I want to know either what happened before we got to this frame or what's going to happen after we get to this frame. And that's part of that sort of continue, continual idea of telling stories with one photo, multiple photos, photos without words, photos without music, whatever it is. But you have to use all of the tools in your disposal to continue to build that narrative from start to middle to finish and then decide where you want to place your audience, what part of that continuum. Yeah, whether that's bluffing out handmade pasta or maybe it's like a half scoop of ice cream or maybe it's like the workers on their coffee break. Absolutely, yeah. It's all of those things kind of lead you to believe that they're, you've interrupted something while it's happening or you're there and present. You're a fly on the wall. You're a fly on the wall, right. And that's a great phrase. But my friend always used that phrase. Um, my friend who taught me photography initially, um, he's, his um, reportage work is gorgeous. And it's because it seems like there's no way a camera could be there in that moment. And it always is. And I really took that to heart with my work mm-hmm. too, is that I really would like the perspective I give on food to feel like, why is there a camera there? There's like, there's, there's no way a camera could be there in that moment. And that, you know, obviously there are plenty of photographers who could do that, but 
but you have to strive to be in that place where we sit there at the table and we look at food from a very distinctive perspective as a as a diner as an eater and a lot of the work that you see that i put out is a perspective that you not wouldn't normally see as a diner would you get on your knees and look at the table from eye level and get that close to your food probably not but that perspective exists so why not give it to somebody because it's a little different and it gives you a different perspective on it's particularly something like desirable food a drip a pour a, a, a waft of steam all of that stuff is really evocative and pulls people in we don't really know why i mean why does why are we why are we attracted to watching the fire in the fireplace it's the same emotion right it's why do we love watching the the waves come up on the shore it's part of the human experience but i think that's part of also our experience with food is we get drawn in by certain things and we can almost smell it and we can almost taste it and i really like to put my audience in that space where it's sort of like and that was the that's the cover i mean the, the what do you call it the title that's the title of the book right the title of the book is that photo makes me hungry because that's what i've been hearing my whole career and it's sort of that's that's the greatest compliment right is that you're uh, giving people that ability to relate to it in a way that's very human that and hunger and desire and also the idea of memory and participation all of those things are all tied into food work i can just imagine you at your first time shoot at this staten island ice cream parlor like behind the cash register and just like you know as you say bringing bringing a new point of view to what otherwise would not be available or readily thought of. You know, those photos have sort of lost to time. I'm sure they live in the uh, New York Times morgue, you know, they're, but it's not, they're not available online. I shot them on film. I don't have the negs, but I remember the photo that they published and I was shocked. It was huge. And it was, I was sitting on the floor and the girl was holding the ice cream cone out, but I shot her from this lower perspective because I felt like, if I were a child, what would my perspective be oh, yeah. of this ice cream cone? So I sat on the floor and I said, hand me that ice cream cone. And she looked at me like I was completely crazy. And I took the picture and I sent it in. And I know that like from a photographic perspective, I may not know have known what the heck I was doing, but I just knew from an emotional perspective that my experience in that ice cream parlor was when I was four feet, when I was four feet tall. So I wanted to make myself four feet tall again. So that was that was what drove it. And I think that sort of instinct that I had on the very first photo shoot was something that's carried me through all these years was I still put myself in that moment in my grandmother's kitchen when I was three feet tall and trying to reach the counter and get at the food. And what was that whole experience like? And obviously, I, I, I opened the book with, with that dedication. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about... Sadie Milo, mm -hmm. Milo, because she is your muse mm -hmm. and your great-great-grandmother, if I'm not mistaken. My great-grandmother. Oh, your great-grandmother. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so tell us about Sadie and why is she so important to you well, and your work? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think she was the person who introduced me to the idea that um, food was the binding element in a family. Um, she was the matriarch and she was pretty bossy and uh, she wasn't 
a particularly warm person in that, you know, she was not hugs and kisses grandma, you know, she just ruled the roost. Love but you, that. But you knew that she loved you because she fed you and she took such joy in feeding oh, you. Oh, yeah. And she took joy in sharing the experience with you, meaning she would take you out to the garden and you'd help pick the basil and she would put you up on the on the counter and you'd watch her make the sauce. And this that part of the experience um, drew me into that world and I was constantly trying to get back to it. Even as a little child, mm -hmm. I was you know, climbing stairs and falling off counters and doing all kinds of things just to be around in her world, in her world, you know, and she just knew one way to relate to children and that was to feed us. And she fed us and we made her happy by eating what she gave us. And clearly, uh, we were very happy to do it, yeah. to participate. Uh, I was a chubby little kid, Aww. uh, as a, as a result of all of that, you know, but it's, um, her um her influence on that part of the cultural aspect of it the familial part of it um the love of food the love of sharing food um is drives me and as as much as i love to share the pictures of the uh, that i make of food i like to cook for people just like she did um and and i'm not to diminish what my mother and my grandmother meant to me either because they both were hugely influential in how i eat, how I perceive food, how I, you know, interact in a family way. My grandmother, uh, Sadie's, Sadie's daughter, Annie, was the baker because she couldn't get anywhere near the kitchen. Oh, no, you know, she so would she, not let her right, in. Right, she wouldn't let her in. So she was the baker. So I, I learned how to bake from her. And it's, it's one of the things I, I still really enjoy doing uh, with my food stylists when I'm working is I will participate in the baking. And of course, the multiple books I've done with Kate McDermott has given me plenty of opportunities. Pies. Pie, pie, and more pie. I just sent in my last set um, of images for her new book last night. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it's it's currently untitled. Uh, I think they're still working on the title, but it's, um, it's a step-by-step -step procedural on how to make pie uh, with technical photos, which we made very pretty. But then I did about 60 beauty shots as well. Oh, so wow. it's going to be a combination of sort of a step-by-step -step manual and like what we did with Art of the Pie, which has some stories Beautiful. woven into it. So that's, um, that's a really exciting new book uh, that I have sort of 2020 release with Kate. And then I did another book with um, ABC Television called uh, The Golden Girls Cookbook. Stop it. No. I'm all over it. It's, it's cheesecake, obviously. 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 <laughs> there. Perfect. Um, basically, what we did was uh, we took the characters and developed menus around their personalities and ethnicities or regional sure. sort of attachments. And uh, it, it was just born from just that. Like, there were no real recipes that came down through sure, sure. The, the production of the show. But it's something that uh, there seems to be an appetite for. And uh, when the chew stopped, the ABC wanted to put me on a new project. So they asked me to kind of work with them on that. And it's uh, it's going to be great. It's just going to be so fun. I'm so excited. Yeah. So uh, we don't know what the cover is yet. So we're still working on that. But it's uh, that's also due uh, in 2020. So got a couple of fun um Fun things coming through. You have a big year coming up. Yeah. I don't know how I segued from my great grandmother into the chew. Well, I guess. Well, the golden Sophia, girl. She was the original golden girl. I was absolutely channeling my, my great grandmother when we were doing the Sophia character. 
and the food was so similar. Like, just, oh, I'm it was sure. just so amazingly similar that it, I actually, when we made the sauce, you know, the, 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 the meat sauce, yeah. um, I sort of, you know, it's indistinguishable from what you would see on, you know, in a picture, but I sort of tweaked it sort of like what my Sunday sauce is like, which, you know, I, I, my Greg, I take her recipe and just kind of injected it into that a little bit, just oh, a little bit. No, you have to take creative license. A little bit. You couldn't tell the difference. It's still red sauce with sausages in it. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would love to hear more about you as a cook as well. Um, we're going to take a quick break, okay. but we'll be back with Andrew Scrivani. Welcome back to Chowhound's Table Talk. We're here with Andrew Scrivani, famed food photographer and now author of his new book, That Photo Makes Me Hungry. So welcome back. Oh, I'm still here. <laughs> still here. Um, I want to talk about my favorite chapter of this book, which is chapter five, Making a Living. How did you decide to incorporate this very practical chapter in this otherwise gorgeous guide to photography? That was completely driven by my workshop audiences. So I was teaching a workshop in San Francisco, and it's a very, it's a very distinctive pivot point where we were doing uh, the end of the day wrap up where we were um, doing assessments of people's photographs. And we got into conversation and all of a sudden I noticed that the last six questions that people asked me weren't about art. They were about business. Like what, what, how do you sell your work? How do you promote yourself? How do you book a studio? How do you get associated with food stylists? Like, should I have an agent? How do I get an agent? Like, all of these business questions. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. This is important for you as a student as much as it is the art. So I developed an entire course based on that day. And then I put it on Creative Live. Uh, we did a two-day business of wow. food photography course. And I feel like from the, the genesis of that as a, as a coming from an audience of food photographers, which is very food photography specific, I thought there were lessons in it that translated to other art forms, other photography forms. If you take out, I developed a list of questions called the ten, the 10 questions you have to ask before you accept a job. And I think that some of them are very specific to food photography, but many of them are translatable to any freelance job. And I just recently was talking with Julio who wrote a book about being a freelancer several years ago before he was doing film. And I said, how about we do a collaboration? Because uh, his book was self-published, mm -hmm. so it's still sort of fresh in the eyes of like normal publishers. I said, what if we revamp the things you did in your book and I'll sort of tweak the things that I wrote in my book and let's write a new book about being a freelancer that is sort of more overarching than just talking about food photography. And so the idea of thinking of myself as a, as a business coach as much as uh, as a creative coach uh, was born from that particular episode and then sort of grew from there. And it's always now become part of anything that I teach. It, a huge component of that is the idea of how to make a living doing what we do. Well, it's not easy, right? It is not. And it never changes. Like the idea is that no matter how successful you get, um, you can't think of your creative career in a linear way. Um, one of the things I try to think about in a visual, you know, to give visual people a visual, um, you know, cue is we're not working in a straight line in, in terms of our career arcs as creatives. You have to think of yourself at the center 
of something that looks like a subway map where you have all these tendrils going out in different directions. Because if you're going to just get on that line and be like, I'm a, I'm a assignment photographer and I'm going to wait for the assignments to come and then I'm going to get that and I'm going to pay my bills that way, you're going to go hungry. It's too hard to make a living that way. There's very, very few people who can focus solely on doing one thing in a creative industry and they make enough money to make a living doing it. Because um, even, even my career, which has on a certain level been fairly high profile, I still need to branch out and do other things. Mm -hmm. I have my teaching stuff. I did advertising. I do publishing. Commission. You know, you editorial. You know, a lot of people get caught in a in a track, and they're like, "I only do this." Well, eventually, that's going to dry up or change, and that's the nature of creative work: is that the industries change, the clients change. I mean, you think about it. I've been, you know, at this for almost twenty years, and now all the people I deal with are as old as my daughter. So it's sort of like. I'm dealing with a very different generation of people that have different expectations that I might not be that important to them because they didn't, they don't understand what I've done in my work. So I need to be respectful of that as well and understand that if I don't, if I'm not flexible, if I'm not uh, relatable, if I'm not up on what's trendy and, and I don't understand the technical and technological aspects of what we do, social media and everything else, I'm a dinosaur. So all of it is about adapt adaptation and being flexible and understanding opportunities when they come your way and moving in directions, you know, things like doing things like this, being accessible and available and, and able to talk to media um, is a big part of what I do now is and show people, okay, that guy takes a really good picture, but he's pretty smart. He can, he can help us. I think he can help us in another way. Maybe, and that's helped, you know, me in consulting with restaurant groups or uh, with publishers on creating a book, not just photographing it mm -hmm. for them and things like that. So you have to be out, expose yourself, be, be willing to grow with the industries around you. And when opportunity comes a knocking, don't peek in, you know, don't peek in. If the door is open to crack, what is it? The line I wrote, if the door is open to crack. When Don't, opportunity knocks, oh, kick down the door. There it is. Yeah. Because that was my that was my experience. I love it. That was my experience with the New York Times, right? Is that the door was open for me, just that little sliver. And I just came barreling through it because I was like, this is it. This is the one opportunity I'm going to get here. And if I don't make an impression, I may not get this chance again. And I feel like I've gone through my entire career that way. Mm -hmm. Is that no matter how many people know my name or seen my work or they don't even know they've seen my work, but they've seen my work. I still see every sliver of door crack as an opportunity to barrel through the door. And that was film and that was directing and that was all of these things. So, and, and of course the book, um, that, that I, although I dragged my feet a little bit because I was, you know, I've had too much experience in dealing with publishers to just be like, Oh sure, I'll do whatever. Because you, I hope you asked these questions. I absolutely asked a lot more than those questions. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about, Business is the part of us that we suppress as artists a lot of time. And I think sometimes we, we feel that that's a sellout sure. to be um, thinking about the money. Uh, but if you want to continue to create, you got to get funded. And if you're going to get, you know, if you're going to continue to create, you got to get paid. So I try to encourage people to put your ego aside that sometimes people will prey on you because you're eager to do things creatively and you want to get the byline and you want to get included and you want to be part of it. But 
you don't want to, you know, give your time away for free. You don't want to give your content away for free. You don't want to do a job and then walk away saying, I don't feel good about that because I, I feel like I got used. And I think a lot of people go through that and they have to learn that. But hopefully when you read the things that I've written uh, about my experiences and also my experiences dealing with other people and, you know, when they come to me and say, how do I build this job? And I can't tell you how many times I've done that. I get a random phone call from mm -hmm. somebody and they'll be like, can you help me? I don't know. Break how it to, down. I don't know what to charge. I don't even know where to start. You know, and I, I'll throw numbers out. I'm like, what market are you in? You know, what, who's the client? What are the kind of things that they're asking you for? How do they want to use your photos? You know, how much time is it going to cost you? And one of the things I talk about when it comes to time is um, your time is really valuable. Not just creative time, but the time you're spending uh, on the back end of a photo shoot because you gave, you know, you sold yourself as a, as a day rate photographer for a work for hire job and you shot all day long and now you have 3,000 images to go through. And post. And yeah. And now you're stuck in post-production for two and three days that you're not getting paid for. That's because you didn't ask the question up front. How many finals do you want? Okay. How do you want to edit these pictures on set? Because if not, I'm going to make the choices, you know, and getting all of those things sort of out in the open so that when you are then not able to eat dinner with your wife or hang out with your kids or, you know, go see your friends and or you're missing Sunday brunch, it's because you didn't plan and properly protect your time. And you have to be honest with your client and say, OK, here's what's going to happen. We're going to shoot um, this whole day. Um, what's the shot list? How many shots do you want? Okay, great. How do you want those delivered? Who's editing? You know, like all of those questions. And if you don't, um, the more questions you ask up front, a lot of times it scares the clients away. It happens to me all the time. I lost two jobs in just the last month because I asked too many questions. I was like, well. You didn't want to work with them anyway. <laughs> well, most likely, yes. Right. That's true. But, you know, when you um, offer, when somebody comes seeking me out, I'm assuming they know what they're asking for. They know the, the, the status of what I am in the industry, what I do, what I produce. And if you're asking me for a price before you ask me what, before you tell me what the job is, well, you didn't do your homework. Mm -hmm. And that is sin number one when you're dealing with me in a business capacity, is that if you come at me and you're not prepared, we're not working together. And I don't, you know, like, because honestly, if you're coming at me and you didn't do your research, because I don't sit in a room with people unless I know who they are, at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Look at their social media profile. Look at whatever is online about them. You know, if, if there is anything at stake, then we got to know, I got to know what I'm dealing with because I don't want to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. I don't want to overshoot my, over, you know, I'll kick my coverage, sports metaphor. But you know, if you get in the room and you're overpricing yourself or underpricing yourself, you're doing yourself a disservice both ways. Because if you underprice yourself, you're going to work too hard for the money you're going to get mm -hmm. paid. And if you overprice yourself, you're not going to get the job. So you have to negotiate that. And a lot of times you can mitigate all of those problems by asking questions up front. Buy this book. You'll get those 10 questions and so much more. But on that note, I do want to ask if you wouldn't mind sharing this case study of Emily, because mm -hmm. I do feel like it's such an important real life example to artists, because be being an artist in 2019 is being a business, a good business person. Sure. 
Well, I think, you know, I write, I write a couple of case studies in the book um, about people who have sort of gotten involved in um, a client relationship that they weren't quite ready for. And one of them involves, um, a, a, of course, these are not the real people sure, sure. and not the real names. So um, I'll just steer away from the names and just tell yeah. the stories. But um, the idea was that um, one person who was a, running a successful blog, doing pretty well on Instagram, staying in, in this very narrow lane um, and got a cookbook out of it and did a really nice job shooting a cookbook. And then the cookbook got some acclaim and it did really well. And then clients came calling. And one of those clients was a magazine that I did some work with. And all of a sudden what was happening was this person who was not in a situation where the art direction team from the magazine could go to mm. her um, did some work that didn't fit the client's needs. And they were stuck now in a situation where they needed to reshoot something that probably cost them, you know, 10, 15 grand to do. Really? And that person, unfortunately, is not going to work anymore for that client. That is a done, that's a done deal. You, you have to do a reshoot on, if the client has to do a reshoot on something you did, you're not working with them anymore. And that's one, that was one case study. And another one was a story about um, somebody who, again, was at the beginning of their career and got some attention and then all of a sudden was offered a really nice opportunity from a really big brand name client in an advertising capacity, but had absolutely no idea how to build a job, build out the job, produce it, you know, get a studio, get a stylist, all of the, the mechanisms, even what to do about client relations, right? Is that if you get a studio, you need to have a space where those clients are going to sit and look at the work and, you know, leather couches and craft services and all of those things. And it was, she wasn't ready and had to turn down the job. But, but you know, you turn down the job because you don't want to step into the situation and then get just blown out of the water and then your reputation is shot. So you, you're better off. And I guess, you know, you bet. And I've, had a couple of situations where I've had people come to me with these mm. sort of things. And my instinct is normally to say, Hey, gracefully bow out. I'm booked. I'm sorry. I, you know, or, uh, you know, I can't do it for this reason or that reason, completely keep it professional. And that way you can always go back again. Mm -hmm. But if you tr take the job, drop the ball and not, you know, complete what needed to be completed, that person or that group of people, you know, they move through the industry. They don't just stay sure, in one place. It's a small world. And then they know that you're not reliable. So, you know, it's better to be honest with yourself. And even though, you know, the, the big ticket item is sitting there in front of you going, oh my God, I really want this job. But you have to be honest with yourself to say, maybe I'm not ready for it yet. Because you may do it, you may get paid for it, but you may not ever, ever get a job like that again. So it's good to be mindful of like what your limits are. And when you reach those limits, and I, I admit to this in the book myself, is that I got to a point where I got a job that was a little bit over my head, but I reached out. And I reached out to friends and other mm -hmm. people in the industry. I got somebody into light for me. I got a producer to help me build a job. And I relied on learning in that moment because I knew I could do the other things. But the things I didn't know I could do well, um, I reached out and got help for. And it turned out okay. Putting your ego on the back burner, as you mentioned, also gives you an opportunity to get paid dividends in the future. Yes. I think that you build relationships. Um, sometimes 
uh, a, a producer friend of mine who I mentioned in the book, her name is Jen. She, um, she taught me something very long time ago about advertising is that if you price yourself in a particular slot, you will always be in that slot. So you need to shoot at the, for the top of the mark in your particular field. So in food, the number is, is the number is X, right? If you're not asking for X, um, and working backwards from that number, you'll never get to that number. So let's say if the, if the day rate for, um, a top notch food photographer in advertising is 5,000 a day, right? If you don't ask for that right off the bat, then that agency is never going to see you as a top tier photographer. So even in times when I wasn't a top tier photographer, I would ask for the top of the mark and let them talk me backwards, not come in and say, I'll do it for this. They're still going to talk you backwards, no matter what you do. No matter what. So you need to start at the top. And if they say no, they say no. And then eventually, as you build your reputation, you just get that one job where they pay you that much money. And then that's your rate. And she told me that. She's like, it's going to be hard. You're going to get told no a lot. But if you don't do it this way, you'll never reach the top. You'll never get to the top mark because they will never take you seriously unless you continue to to act like you've been there before, act like you belong there. And that's what I did. And um, I mean, my advertising career hasn't been a stellar one, I, w- by, I wouldn't say. I think my editorial career has been much more recognizable um, because I feel like the creative um, freedom I've had in editorial has allowed me to grow much more than what I've done in advertising. And I think advertising in general, it's uh, my work isn't as commercial looking Mm -hmm. so but the but the experience i've had in advertising have been good ones with the clients with you know with the work but it's um but again you know when it comes my way my agent says this is his rate this is what it is and that's how it works you should be a linkedin consultant or creative times. These Listen, are all very... anybody anybody out there who needs a <laughs> business coach, uh, give me a call. He's available. I'm available. Andrew Scarvani. <laughs> I'm here all day. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this entry into <clears throat> photography as a business because the way you came up is it's different these days, and I need to talk about social media because there's so many photographers, mm. quote unquote photographers um, on the scene, but then when they're approached by real life companies or projects, they're kind of caught like a deer in the headlights. Yeah. I think that goes back to those case studies a little bit, but I think the landscape is so different and social media has been a game changer for food photography in particular. Um, it's changed the way we look at food photography. It's changed the, the players in the game, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the money players and who's actually paying for work. There are quite a few people who are in that same bandwidth of being able to do something very well in a very narrow sort of field. And once you're asked to get pushed outside of that, um, it becomes a little uncomfortable. And I, I coach people to say, you know, being a professional photographer is being able to make that picture anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. And until you can make that picture, your signature look, in any circumstance, you're not really a professional yet. And I think there's a lot of people who are making money with cameras right now who aren't, who f- don't really, who don't fit the, that definition. That doesn't mean they still aren't making money doing what they're doing. But um, to branch out beyond that, to be expressive 
um, as a creative, not just as a commodified kind of creative. I don't know what that, what I meant by that, but I mean influencers. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean that those words. I mean, I think they've all kind of ended up becoming like dirty words in your mm-hmm. mouth in a lot of ways. You know, my brand, my I'm an influencer, all these other things. Basically, it means you have an audience, and you need to cultivate and care for that audience in the way that they're looking for you to behave. So, for example, I do a lot of different things. The only thing my audience re- re- reacts to is food photography. Like I put stuff up there about my films or I put stuff, nobody cares. It's just not, uh, it's, that is the nature of social media is that if you have a dedicated audience who's, who are into what you do, they don't really care what else you do. They want to know the thing you do that makes them happy. And for me, that's food photography. Um, so I use my social media as a platform for that and nothing else. I don't show you my family. Mm-hmm. I don't show you what I'm doing recreationally. I don't have pets, so I don't take pictures of them. My my daughter's 21 years old, so I'm not showing you pictures of her. You know, so I'm staying in my lane where my audience wants me. And I feel like the the game is engagement, right? There are social media platforms where I contribute to at times that have massive followings. New York Times, Tasting Table, you know, some of these big player entities. And the engagement level that I have from my modest following comparatively is remarkable. Like I have an engaged audience and I I love the fact that they know I'm accessible and I, I interact with them and it's not populated by bots and all these other things. Cause then I go on other platforms and I feel like the engagement is sort of the same, even though the following is much bigger. Mm-hmm. So I think engagement with social media is the thing you should pay attention to when you're crafting and cultivating your feeds as far as being in your style, showing what you can do, being accessible and engaging. Nothing is more obnoxious than somebody who is, uh, has a million followers and follows four people. Mm. It's, it's obnoxious. So, you know, I think that, you know, you want to have a, a curated social media as a photographer. You should constantly edit your social media as a photographer this is your portfolio nobody is looking for your paper portfolio anymore everybody's looking at your social and it's mostly your instagram and if you're not cultivating it curating it crafting it to be a a great representation of what you are as an artist you're missing the opportunity because most of the art directors and the photo directors and the social media people are all younger people they wouldn't know what to do with a print portfolio. This is their language. This is the language, right. And you need to speak it. And you need to speak it fluently and be really comfortable there. And if you're not, I see some, there's some great, great food photographers out there who are not that old, younger, considerably younger than I am, who are just not doing it well on social media. It's a gorgeous picture. It's a beautiful tear sheet. It's a picture of your kid. No, it's just, it's, that's just the wrong way to go. Oh my God, everyone prunes their social media feed after this talk <laughs> well look i mean I, I don't know that i'm the be all and end all that's literally my feed Sorry. <laughs> well I, mean, I don't i don't know that i'm the be all and end all and i don't mean to be critical i'm just saying that if i'm looking at this like if i'm an art director or a creative director and i'm looking at you as an artist there i don't need all that take that to facebook you know take it somewhere else you want to talk about politics do it on twitter you know you need to 
you need to um, compartmentalize what you're doing in your social media because you're not you there. I'm Andrew Scrivani, the art, the, the creative on, so, on social media. Who I am as a person, who I am as a father, who I am as a, as a husband, who I am as, you know, as a friend, all of those things, that's none of your business. If you want to be in, in my life that way, well, that's a, that's a whole different thing. But I don't feel like I have to in, 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 um, inject that into the rest of my life. Because, or overshare. Well, sure. I mean, I think, look, people are proud of, you know, the people in there. They have a great looking dog or, you know, you, your kid is cute. Everybody thinks their kid's cute. Everybody thinks their dog is cute. And I agree. There's a lot of cute kids and dogs on Instagram. <laughs> I totally get it. But if I'm looking at you as a creative, uh, I don't want to know. And the other thing I want to be really clear about is if I'm an art director looking to hire you and I see that you're vacationing in Milan and Curacao and Iceland and every other mm. spot on earth and you don't look hungry to me. Mm. You don't. It's and a paper trail. It, yeah, it is a paper trail. It's, I, I want to, I, you know, I, I want to know that you're dedicated to your craft and that's where your focus is. And if you're a travel photographer, great. If you're not, I don't need to see that because it's, again, it's distracting me from what's important when trying to decide whether I want to hire you as an artist. That's for sponsored content, for uh, an advertising campaign, for something editorial. It crosses all boundaries. But if I'm not seeing your best or i'm seeing some kind of fragmented version of your life uh, as an artist i don't i don't know that i'm gonna be as impressed with that andrew scrivani dropping that social media knowledge i don't know yeah i guess well it's from experience it too, is so. it really is i mean i think that my experience with my following which is sort of it feels very organic it's grown slowly it's pretty solid mm -hmm. And, and the people that are involved. And, you know, just recently I just said, let me do an experiment. And I do this pretty often with social. I just try to figure out what is it that builds an audience, right? Because I, I try to get answer the questions that come to me in workshops and other things. And I did the hashtag thing. I hashtagged a whole bunch of stuff for like a month just to see what would happen. I didn't notice any difference. I did the whole adding at people just to see if that made mm. any difference. I tried doing the tagging people in pictures thing just to see if that made a difference. I followed a whole bunch of people just to see if that made a difference. And quite honestly, it didn't really. Because honestly, the people who followed me back were people who had considerably lower, you know, uh, considerably lower uh, followings than I had. They saw that I had a big following. They saw that I had a blue check next to my name. Oh, let's follow this guy back. But anybody who had, so it's a bit of a hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? As to whether or not you can even get somebody's attention when you follow them or you like their pictures or you tag them in, a, in something. And then, of course, the bigger the account gets, the less likely that that actual person is inter interfacing with the audience. Right? Once you get past 50,000 followers or something like that, the engagement, and if you have an engaged audience, it's overwhelming. It's a full-time no. job. It's a lot. It is because, honestly, it, it, to, to cultivate it, and to curate it and to be part of it. And, and you're responding to the comments and questions. I try to, yeah. I try to. When somebody says something nice, I try to say thank you. I mean, it's it's pretty common courtesy. But I think if my audience was 400,000 instead of 40,000, I don't know that I could handle all that 
all day. It's a full-time job. But the reality is I would try to do my best because mm -hmm. I think it's it's something like when people respond to your work, you want to be grateful. Uh, and I am. I'm hugely grateful for the the relationships I've formed on social media. Some of them have turned into real friendships yeah. in the real world. Um, but it's a it's another aspect of your image as an artist. It's it's a it's, it's also a, an, an immeasurably great platform for an artist. It allows me like the story aspect, right? I love the story because the story gives me an opportunity to do so many different things that is not part of my permanent portfolio that my Instagram feed is. So recently people have been uh, po posting pictures of themselves with the book. Like some people did the unboxing yeah. thing and some people showed themselves in front of the Christmas tree and some people, you know, and I posted all of that stuff up to my Good. story. Yeah, because, you know, thank you. Thank you for reading my book. Thank you for going out and taking the time to buy my book. You know, of course, I'm going to try to acknowledge you if you if you did that. That's that's terrific. Um, and if you make a comment, I like it. And if I have an opportunity, I say something back. And I think that's part of it, too, is that people want to know that you're human, uh, especially if they admire you or like what you do or, or have have contributed to you becoming successful in any particular thing. And social gives you that platform every day is to say thank you back to the people who have made you what you are. So, You're just a nice stand up guy. I try to be. That's I mean, I think. More importantly than good artists, hopefully the people who I've met and worked with and enjoyed having spent time with during this career remember me as the nice guy first. I think I've told everyone in this room, there are other people in this room, by the way, that your reputation is so clean and warm in this industry. Everyone loves working with you. They have only the best things to say about you. That's really nice to hear because um, I try. I do. Because I think that I I know what it was like to work in toxic environments. I've worked for really bad bosses. Mm. I've played for really bad coaches. Um, so when I was doing those things and I was put in a position of authority or I was put in a position of recognition, um, it, it always felt like I learned, what do you say, negative role models? Yeah, I've, I've had some negative role models in my life um, and I know what not to do. It's so much easier when you know not what not to do. Because it's hard to figure out what to do. Mm. But I think it's work hard, be nice is sort of really easy. I mean, I don't think it's really much harder than that. Is that if you put, show people that you put the effort in every day, um, that you're not, you're willing to not shy away from the things you're asking other people to do. Um, if, if I'm going to get in the kitchen with my stylist, I'm going to get dirty. And I'm, you know, I'm going to put the apron on and I'm going to work with you. You know, if you don't know what I'm trying to explain to you and I, I need to show you, I will. Um, and I'm not going to yell at people or freak out or. You, you know. can't do that anymore, I think. No, I think. That not that you ever should have, or, but I feel no. like that image of that diva, divo. It's gone. It really is. And I spent so much time yelling at kids in classrooms. I'm kind of over it. <laughs> We're going to hit pause right there for just a second and come back with Andrew Scrivani in just a bit. Welcome back to Chow Hound's Table Talk. We're um, here with Andrew Scrivani talking about his new book uh, and food photography at large. I would love to ask you about um, some of your gear for those listening in who might be more into the technical aspect. And I know that you are a self-professed gearhead, and but ultimately you shoot best with the camera that you have on hand. 
Yeah, I think it's an old, it's like an old photographer saying is the best camera that you have is uh, the best camera is the one that you have, right? Is that you, you make and create with what is available to you. And I think some of the tools that we all carry in our pockets right now are just so ridiculously powerful comparatively, like um, the new iPhone and the new Pixel. Those cameras are better than the original, like Canon 10Ds. Oh, like, yeah. the, the file sizes are better. They're, it's just, it's remarkable how advanced just that little pocket camera is and the fact that you can achieve depth of field and there's so many different things you could do with it. So I try not to let people, particularly when they're starting in photography, to get hung up on gear because I feel like you should develop your eye with whatever you have and gear is something that you add as it becomes a necessity. And one of the things that I followed in my career was um, when I was making money at the beginning of my career, I would funnel a lot of that money back into my gear because it was clearly self-sustaining. Uh, I didn't try to extend myself and buy gear that I wasn't ready for. Uh, but when it became apparent that I needed a more powerful camera or a better lens or whatever because the job dictated it, I found it was better to own that gear and bill it to my clients than it is to rent it and then, you know. Then you have to rent it really again. Rent it again, but also not learn it, right? Is that I, I got masterful with the macro lens because at the time it was something that appealed to me, but it was something also that I had. I had it in my bag. I got to experiment with it. I got to play with it. And, you know, rather than trying to work on different lensing all the time because I'm renting, I, I bought these particular lenses. I worked with them all the time. I got really comfortable in the frame and it allowed me to understand like the um, limits and the, and the expectations of what I can make with these, with these particular lenses and camera systems and whatever. But um, like I'm pretty much a three lens guy. I mean, I shoot a 50, I shoot a 50 macro and I shoot a hundred macro. And for food, I don't need anything else. I can make everything work with those lenses. With the exception of like the monster overhead mm. where I need more width and then I have to do, you know, aberration correction in, in post. But for the most part, a 50 millimeter frame is perfect for food. It really is. I mean, my tabletop surfaces are three by two, which is the same aspect ratio as the sensor. So if I get the absolute edges of a tabletop, a three by two tabletop, I can fill that whole frame and I and it's perfect. No, no lens aberration, no bending, you know, and it's it's the frame I work in all the time. And you had mentioned a little bit in your book the kind of transition or adaptation from film photography to digital. And it was a little bit about that framing and the aspect ratio. Yes. That you had um, to get accustomed to. Absolutely. Because the, the first um, generation of digital cameras and some cameras that are still on the market today are not full frame. So when you put a 50 millimeter lens on a crop sensor, it becomes more like an 85. So if you don't understand that and you go out and you hear uh, somebody recommend you go buy a 50 millimeter macro lens and then all of a sudden you slap it on your camera and you're shooting what's almost the equivalent of 100, it's going to be pretty hard to understand. So understanding that if you want to work in the, the aspect ratios that we're talking about, like in a 50 millimeter or whatever, that's on a full frame sensor. So if you're, when you go out to buy a camera, you should ask that question, is this a full frame sensor? And you will pay a little bit more for a full frame, but I think if you're serious about your photography, uh, it's not that much more where you're saying, oh, I can't break the bank on this. You know, you're talking about 
the next level up, but it's going to give you so much more freedom and flexibility to learn your frames based on the lensing that you can purchase. We ask a lot of our guests about their favorite tools and pantry ingredients. So I guess this is basically that version where I think you're a Canon guy. So your favorite Canon body and your three lenses and some maybe prized surfaces. I read about the zinc one that you out auctioned. Uh, Yes. I mean, uh, the surfaces have been sort of a calling card for me. And it was very interesting because I was talking to somebody the other day about the work and she said to me, your work is so textured that I feel like every aspect of what you put in the photo feels like it's alive. And a lot of that has to do with the fact is everything starts from this base um, in food photography from your surface you know, and up. And when you have sort of character and tone and sort of uh, surfaces that feel like they've been lived in a little bit, it adds that texture. So um, I feel like a starter kit for people when you're thinking about, you know, when you're thinking about starting a collection of surfaces um, is something warm, something woody and warm, something light and airy wood, and then like something like marble, lighter colored stone, and then something gray, whether it be metal or stone or even like there's some painted surfaces. Mm. But I think that color palette works really well with food and you want things to be low shine. You don't want things to have a high shine on them because you want them to sort of suck the light in Mm -hmm. and not bounce it back at your camera. So the prize surface that we were just talking about is uh, this zinc top surface. It's got to be, I don't know, it must have been made 50 years ago. And um, when uh, this big auction, uh, big um, prop house in New York was going out of business, Uh, I was, I entered into an auction to buy off a bunch of their stuff and I ended up buying a cube truck full of surfaces and I got a lot of them in like bulk, you know, you buy a, you buy a lot and you get, I don't mean a lot, like many, I mean a lot, like a lot, a lot. Yes. Um, and then I ended up with a lot of junk and I ended up with a lot of great stuff, but then there was this one section that were not being grouped. They were sold individually and auctioned individually and there were these antique zinc tops which are just gorgeous on on, on camera and i shot with it yesterday and i shoot with it whenever i can because it's just something that is so unique and it's so versatile and it was so expensive and you realize (laughs) why you know like so the first one went up for auction and i put in a bid yeah a couple hundred bucks all right 300 bucks 500 bucks 800 bucks and then it goes up to a thousand and then it goes up to 1200 and i'm like are you kidding me Who's paying this money for these things? Why are you pay? Why are people paying this much money for? It? Okay, fine. That one, I let it go. Another one come up, same thing, and I'm like, okay, because I know who was bidding on these things because it was all my competitors. Oh yeah, it was all the people in this in the same kind of bandwidth of uh, videographers and photographers and studio owners. And I was like, all right, well, there's only one left. I better go for it. And I ended up getting it, um, and it cost me, you know, over a thousand dollars for this. But this zinc top, but literally it has paid for itself in spades. And considering the other major surface that you see in, and you'll see it in my book, is this sort of antiqued uh, white marble Mm -hmm. that's very clean. It's not very veiny. I found that as the top of, um, it was the top of a dressing table in a junkyard outside, living outside. And the whole um, vanity part of it was falling apart. So I asked the guys, like, how much for this this marble tabletop? He's like, well, 
it's part of this vanity. I'm like, I don't want the vanity. He's like, I don't know. Give me 25 bucks. You took it and ran. I, so I took it. I ripped it. I ripped it right off the top <laughs> of the vanity. I tucked it under my arm and I got it in my car. And I've literally shot on that thing for a decade. It's amazing. Amazing. It's, yeah. Well, most of the Otto Lenghi stuff that I shoot for the Times, oh. that's sort of become the signature. The zinc has also become sort of a signature yeah. of that column. Um, but those those surfaces. And then, you know, like I said, I've, I've spent as much as $1,000 on one. And I've, I've gotten some in the garbage. You know, like I was at... You know the photographer Damon Winter for the for the New York Times? I don't know him personally, but okay, certainly well, know his work. He, he's a friend, and I was at his house, and for whatever reason, the elevator wasn't working. So we had to go through the back and down this weird staircase. And as we're going there, there's like the bulk garbage out there. And there was a piece of gray slate, smooth and beautiful, matte, and... It was just like sitting there in the bulk garbage. And I look at him, I go, what's that? He goes, I don't know. Somebody's doing a renovation. Why? I'm like, call me a cab. <laughs> I carried it down three flights of stairs, got it out to the street, put it in the cab and brought it to my studio. And I've been, I've been shooting on that thing for six or seven years. So like, you never know. You just keep your eyes open. And, and sometimes these surfaces sort of present themselves to you. And if they become part of your regular rotation, it's, you know, it's, they're priceless. It's certainly something you wouldn't, as a casual observer, notice right away, but it adds like this, for example, the zinc, it's modeled, it's got texture, cool, I don't know, all the things, and it just adds to the story. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big part of the story because having the props that I've collected and put in my, in my work, starting with the surfaces, they feel like they belong to a story, not were bought at the store yesterday and put in a photo, which I feel like a lot of photography that's, you know, we're getting into this sort of modern discussion of food photography. And I feel like a lot of it feels very catalog-y. Um, and we're kind of losing that, the richness of texture and our lives are textured. We're, we're scarred and, and, you know, this is, the food is a representation of all of that. We're not perfect. And the food we experience also should not feel that way. Like we go back to the conversation we had earlier about mm -hmm. this sort of continuum of this cinematic experience of being in the moment with food. And I think the texture of uh, patina and age and wear is something that gives character to the experience of making food, eating food, participating with food. It's not all supposed to be served on a perfect plate mm -hmm. that you know, there are no drips and there, there's nothing spread around. And, you know, the fork is perfectly shiny right out of the box. That, that's not, I don't think that's real life. And that, I don't think that's what resonates with people. That being said, what is, what's been the hardest thing you've ever shot? If you can recall or yeah, anything I, particularly challenging. Yeah. I, uh, I don't get freaked out pretty easily. I mean, I eat a lot of weird stuff and I'm not really of that um, squeamish, but when I had to shoot a cow's tongue, that kind of freaked me out. Um, <laughs> it just looked so human, you know, like it was huge. Oh, not sliced. No, no, no. The <laughs> like whole, an actual the whole thing. Like I had to go to the store and I'd pick it up and I got it. I was like, wow, this is heavy. This is weird. Right. Cause it was all wrapped up and I got it back to the studio and I opened it up. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, what do you want me to do with this? I mean, obviously I knew what to do with it, but it, it was challenging. And honestly, I've eaten tongue a few times and I, 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 the texture is weird and I didn't, I never, I, it just didn't agree with me. I didn't like it. So I think that was part of the, 
I had a little bit of revulsion. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty challenging for me. Um, from a photographic perspective, I mean, we made an interesting photo out of oh, it. I'm that sure. was not a problem. But um, that was a little bit of a barrier. But um, I think in terms of overall, like photographically, uh, the joke I consistently tell is if I have to shoot another frittata, I, I don't think I can survive it. <laughs> uh, Why? It's not brown food. No, it's not brown food. And, you know, brown food's really hard and green food is really hard. And, you know, lighting things, I sort of just absorb all the light. But I also think that, you know, when you do a lot of food work and you find that there's some sort of repetitiveness to the, you know, soup, a salad, a frittata, a soup, a salad, a frittata. I did that with the Recipes for Health column with the Times for many, many years. And I think there's only so many ways to shoot something like that. And then it's like, all right, I've shot this 85 times. How do I do it differently? And you, you stress out about it. It's like, I don't want to make the same picture over and over and over again. But again, you know, there's only so many ways you can shoot a frittata. So you do it. Let me guess what you're having for brunch this weekend. <laughs> I, you know, I make them all the time. I just don't oh, yeah. I don't, I just don't. I made one yesterday. I just don't shoot them. What are you cooking for yourself? I don't. You, you've mentioned you're a cook. Are you the cook in the family? I am. And um, I'm sort of like the leftover king because I end, up with, that. I, I, I end up with a lot of leftovers. And I like, do a lot of repurposing of leftovers. So like we went out for some barbecue um, on Saturday and I had some ribs left over and some brisket left over. So I made sort of like a meat frittata out of it <laughs> you can't yeah. you can't escape it but you didn't see it on my instagram right because <laughs> yeah. i didn't shoot how it. about your stories I didn't shoot, not on my story either no i just didn't shoot it i don't even go anywhere near it with a camera um <laughs> but i do a lot of that i mean i make my 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 grandmother my great-grandmother sauce i mean that's something yeah. i do in bulk i have like a, a 10 gallon pot and i make uh i make it with like 25 pounds of meat and, yeah. and make it for months and months at a time um i like slow cooking i'm sort of a slow cook guy i like slow cooked meats um I, I dig you know a lot of asian food i eat a lot of um a lot of thai vietnamese filipino korean japanese like had amazing japanese food last night we eat at this place uh on ninth street we've been eating there for years called hasaki it's downstairs oh. so good so good it's just you know it it's so relevatory when you eat food where every bite you put in your mouth resonates you know, like you, because we eat a lot of food. There. It's like you shovel it in. Mm -hmm. You okay? I'm full. Let's go. But like that meal last night, in, and I've eaten there. I can't. I can't tell you. I've eaten there once a month, probably for the last ten years. And every time I'm there, it's the same experience. It's like every bite is delicious, and it's just amazing what food can do for your your physical, yeah. psychological well being. You like you walk out of that place, you spent a fortune, and you're like, I was worth every penny. Yeah, I feel so good about that. So that's, you know, I don't know how we got there, but, oh, you asked me about cooking. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was also going to ask you what your favorite place in New York City to dine is, well, to dine at is. It's, it's, it's a combination of great food that's super consistent and a place that feels like home. So there's a place called Il Posto Acanto on 2nd Street uh, between um, A and B. It's been there. It was one of those sort of OG places in the early 90s when there was nowhere to get a bite to eat in the East Village, like other than pierogi. And um, the owners have become friends. But the thing that's really remarkable about this restaurant is you go in there and there's no turnover. The people who have worked there have worked there for years. The food tastes the same every time you eat it. You go in there on Sunday and Beatrice is behind the bar, the owner, and she's holding court. And it's like being in your, in your, you know, Family. your auntie's kitchen on a Sunday, you know, it's, 
it feels like home. It's very Italian, but it's also like very East Village. And the the owner, the 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 other owner, the husband of the chef, his name is Julio. He's from you know Washington Heights. He's a Dominican guy, and these they're so New York. Like she's from Rome, yeah. and he's from here, and it's just. It feels great. The food feels great. You know, like everything about it is just the experience you want to have with food. And it's got a little bit of a celebrity sort of clientele, like Padma used to go there all the time when she lived across the street and, you know, things like that. But it's still sort of a little off the radar. And I've talked about it a lot of times and it's still a little off the radar, but it's... Um, Not for long. Nah, you know, <laughs> I listen, I'm, yeah. I'm willing to help out any way I can keep that place alive. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's one of those places that, is truly a New York experience. It feels like it belongs in New York City and it doesn't feel like it could exist anywhere else. And it's the food, the people, the whole environment is fantastic. So that's my favorite place. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to have to check it out since it's in my neighborhood. Too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so let me guess, you're not the type to whip out your camera before a meal. Never. I don't shoot in restaurants anymore. I don't, I find it. I did it the other day. I was out with Todd Coleman and he was, he wanted me to, participate in this uh new menu that he was proposing for um for the gabriel cruder restaurant and it was uh it was a lot of fun but you know there was this expectation of like taking some pictures and posting them on you know whatever and i was feeling like a little stressed about it because i didn't bring a camera i'm not set up i mean i was shooting with my phone and i was sort of like eh. so i you know i found a few that i liked and it was okay but uh, it's just not what i and i find it a little bit I want to experience my food and, mm -hmm. and appreciate it. I spend a lot of time looking at food through a lens. So I really just want to be present with my food when mm -hmm. I'm in restaurants. But the other part of it is reputationally, mm -hmm. I don't have my lighting. <laughs> what am I going to do here? You're going to you're going to get the table next to the window. That's what you're going to do. I was going to try to get the table next to the window. That's true. I'll sit outside and yeah. with, a nice, under, with a nice white tent over me. In 30 degree weather. Uh, yeah. Listen, for the shot, of course, you know, the soup will be cold, but whatever. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask about what your favorite thing to shoot is, whether I, it's food or not. It is. Um, it, it is definitely dessert. Uh, I think dessert because it lends itself to so much texture. It's something that makes people really happy. Uh, you get to eat it afterwards. I think there's a lot to be said about dessert work because it's, it can't, it isn't always easy. I mean, sometimes it's hard. Like, it's dripping and it's melting. It's dripping, it's melting. Dealing with ice cream is a nightmare. But, you know, there's something innate in our reaction to sweets and things that, you know, have been sort of ingrained in us as rewards. Mm. You know, reward for eating your broccoli, reward for being a good, <laughs> a good kid, you know, all of that stuff. I think there, there's something, you know, we're, that's baked into our DNA about the res response to sweets other than the fact that sugar makes us feel good. Um, but I think it's the, that experience and being able to share that and being, uh, being the delivery system for that, I think has been fun. It's why the cover of the book is a spoon of chocolate. You know, it's something that makes us really happy. It's very evocative. It, you know, I got, I got a lot of freedom with Countrymen to pick the cover photo, which is not usual. And I, I, I really appreciated that. They let me pick the things that were important to me, which was the size of the book, uh, the typeface, the cover. Uh, those were things, and the fact that it was hardcover. Those were the four sort of non-negotiables. And, you know, the, having that creative freedom to kind of make it look like the way I wanted it to look, not just the inside, but the outside, yeah. was important. Because I feel like a lot of times I've done books 
and I didn't have any um, input on the cover. And I'm sort of like, I don't think the cover necessarily tells the story of what's inside the book. And I think that does. I think that sort of speaks to a lot of things. And then that little white highlight on the tip of the spoon is my magic window. That is the window. That it is, looks like it. Yeah. I have to ask before we're through about food porn as we know it today. Mm. Do you have an opinion on what makes good food porn? I hate that expression, number I, one. I, but I agree with that. I, I think um, it's kind of gotten – we've gone from the movie house to the a VHS uh, transition of pornography, you know? <laughs> where they used to actually have a plot and then they just <laughs> got down to business. You know, like I feel like that's the difference between the kind of work that I've been trying to do and make food look evocative and desirable and like uh, a 40-pound hamburger being ripped in half mm. on Instagram. I mean, that that's the analog for me. I think that's where we've become, it's become a little bit grotesque. Mm. Um, I don't mean grotesque, like it's not edible. I think grotesque sort of like a representation of our experience with food has become sort of extreme and it's uh, it doesn't feel like a authentic expression of desire for food. It feels like this overblown um, sensationalized version of it. And I think that's what resonates, you know, drips and of too much of this and too much of that. It's sort of this representation of excess. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is being sort of portrayed as food porn these days. Um, because I don't feel like the artistic version of that, which is the steam rising, you know, the inside of the steak, you know, whatever it might be, it's sort of more 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 restrained. I would call sense. I would call what I do now rather than food porn. I would call it intimate. I want you to be intimate yeah. with the food, which is a little bit a nicer way of saying that. Because I think when we start to use a word like porn, it starts to feel a little dirty and it starts to feel a little, you know, excessive and that's not what the feeling I'm trying to evoke. I want people to feel like they're connected to the food and involved and intimate with the food, but not necessarily making it, you know, sloppy. Is there a special food or subject that is a dream for you to get that you haven't shot yet? You know, I, I, I get asked that question quite often, and there's, and I think it's really... Uh, tied into a, a conversation we had off mic earlier about um, visiting Asia. Well, my wife is from Korea and to kind of go back to Seoul with her and experience. I think I, I want to translate what I do in that world a little bit because I never really had that experience. And I do want to um, spend some time doing a little bit more travel style, um, verite kind of food related work. So I think um, India looks amazing. You know, points in Southeast Asia look amazing. Richness and yeah, color. Yeah, richness and color and and this sort of still what feels like a very primal connection to food where I feel like in America we've lost that a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of processed food. We eat a lot of um, boxed and cans and, and those things. And I don't know that that necessarily translates to what I do and the stories I want to tell. Mm -hmm. But I do think that some of these other cultures feel like they're still connected to real food. So I think that's a sort of a long roundabout answer to your question, but because I don't know that there's any one specific thing, but I think it's more of a feeling yeah. and a tone of sort of expressing my affection for food, my connection to food, and the things that um, make me happy about it. And what can we see next from you? 
obviously you're busy with this very new book. I am. But you have your film, you have your book, yes. you have your uh, workshops. I do. Um, uh, I think in terms of the book, uh, I have some events coming up. I'm going to be teaching a workshop out in Long Island. Uh, I'll be posting some things about that on my social. I'm also going to be going back out to Creative Lab in February to, to do an update on the food photography class. Um, I feel like so much has changed in food photography since I initiated that class. And I think there's a, a an update due and they feel the same way. And I think that that would be really helpful um, for a lot of the people who have been fans of that class uh, to go back and sort of look at things from a little bit more modern perspective, which is great. I have a short film that's going to be going into um, film festivals in 2020 called Ten Shots bit of a departure for me it's a uh it's a thriller wow it's a no dialogue thriller uh about a hunter who goes out into the woods um deer hunting and encounters a hostage situation and then he has to start to make life and death decisions from 100 yards away right so it's a it's a really intense script that i fell in love with uh it's a director uh named uh, gordon shoemaker uh he wrote it and directed it uh with his partner uh Dr. Elizabeth, Dr. Elizabeth Barchi. She's the co-director of the film. They just got engaged. Congratulations. Um, but that, that film, uh, yeah, represented my first uh, complete solo act as a, as a producer. So I'm wow. credited as a full producer on the film. I also am the executive producer of the film. So um, we'll be seeing that in 2020. Uh, Team Marco is out in the world, hopefully finds a, a permanent home pretty soon, whether that be a a uh, big theatrical release or streaming, those negotiations are underway. Mm-hmm. So um, Keeping tabs. That was that. fun. And uh, obviously uh, my columns with the New York Times, uh, David Tannis's column and uh, Yotam Ottolenghi's column, uh, we still have new work coming out uh, every month for those two distinguished gentlemen, which I'm, I feel absolutely blessed to be working Incredible with. Incredible figures. Their foods are amazing. Truly. Absolutely. Every recipe works. Every recipe is beautiful. They just pop out. On it, it's yeah, it just it's amazing. Just beautiful food to work with. So um, I feel really, really grateful that after all these years with the times, that they're still trusting me with some of their big names, and we uh, we work really well together. So that's uh, that's a big roundup. Oh yeah, you you you've got a full plate. A full plate. AndrewScrivani.com. Where can we follow you on social? Yeah, um, I'm primarily on Instagram uh, at my name, at Andrew Scrivani, but I'm also on Twitter if you want to hear me rant about things other than food. Uh, I do a little bit of Facebook, but that's really more like family and friends kind of thing. Um, so don't be offended if I do not accept your friend request. <laughs> uh, and that's about it for social. I mean, uh, I don't I don't partake in Snap or anything like that because I, I just leave that. The platforms that my kid is on, I try to steer clear i've already co- i've already co-opted instagram so she's not so happy about that one but uh you must be the coolest dad it's funny her friends think it's very cool that i have the blue check that's the big thing not the not the fo- not the followers it's the verified account that's apparently the big deal so she's gonna ride that for a while well it's funny the the cafe she worked at um gives like uh they used to give keychains to um to uh Instagram influencers and then give them free stuff. So one of the times I was in there, you know, and I'm drinking a coffee or whatever. And the owner comes up to me and he's like, yeah, we give all of these people 
free stuff. And she, he's like, you're the only person in here I should be giving free stuff to because you're actually in the food world. That's <laughs> so, so I was funny. like, well, then give me some free stuff, man. I'll take some free matcha. What do you want? You know. <laughs> the accidental influencer. <laughs> yeah. The that would be a funny book kind that's, of title. Yeah. That's the next short film. <laughs> Jesus, now I got to work with you. I know. I'm really easy to work with. All right, good. I like it. That's a great idea. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for coming through. It's been such a joy just chatting with you and getting to know you better. And um, good luck in 2020. Thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, Happy holidays. And uh, I hope to be back. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Chowhound's Table Talk. Keep up with the latest on our site, chowhound.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social.